This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. If you find your grasp and knowledge of sleep medicine is shallow and seem to focus on a few conditions and lack a clear approach to this common disorder, here's an opportunity to start from the basics and, over a series of podcasts, build up your knowledge and allow you to become more effective in managing the sleepy patient. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Anup Desai. Dr. Desai, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'm a sleep and respiratory physician. I've over 20, uh, 25 years experience. I initially trained mainly in respiratory medicine, but then got very interested and involved in sleep medicine, as some of us do, and, and did a PhD in sleep disorders at Sydney University. Uh, my topic there was more to do with driving and sleep apnea, obviously a really important topic. Then I did a postdoc overseas in the UK, and since then have come back and, and work largely in, in a very clinical field of sleep medicine. I've got a hospital teaching role at Prince of Wales Public Hospital, where I'm a senior staff specialist, and I have my consulting rooms. Um, I've seen many and all varied of cases of sleep medicine over the years. And throughout my career, I've really been quite involved in education, particularly at GP level, and just broadening the, the knowledge of sleep amongst the people around us, medical professionals, dentists as well, because the reality is we all have to deal in this area now, increasingly so. It's not just the sleep specialist or the respiratory specialist. And there really hasn't been much knowledge and education distilled to these groups. And, and I think they're really just picking up condition as conditions as they go and, and catching on to limited knowledge. But the whole basics of sleep um, was never covered. The range of disorders, the range of symptoms, um, how to think about it a bit more broadly. And then, of course, you narrow down to the individual disease conditions. Everyone, I think, has been forced to go straight to the disease condition. Whereas, as you know, with respiratory medicine, you know, you didn't go straight to pneumonia. You learned all about pulmonary physiology, hypoxia. You learned about um, immune responses and, and just general stress and infectivity. And then you would understand pulmonary pneumonia. Um, whereas in sleep medicine, I, I feel that a lot of people are asked to just understand obstructive sleep apnea which is only one of many sleep conditions. And it, it, really, um, it really sort of dumbs down the management of the patient and, and the whole area to just think so narrowly. Mm. I think hopefully in this podcast, we can open that up a bit. I know, I think you've just described me perfectly because over the many, many years working as a GP, you learn on the run, but you always know that you don't fully understand so much, including uh, how to read a report, which we will cover at a later date. So uh, for all the GPs out there, this is your chance to understand sleep medicine 101. And we're gonna start with probably the most important question. Uh, Dr. Desai, why is sleep important? 
Well, interesting question. So, of course, sleep is is almost a third of our life. So probably we don't need to say anything more because we put so much energy into our daytime activities, you know, mindfulness approaches, executive coaching, mind coaching, which is just minutiae of our daytime alertness and focus, yet um, people ignore their sleep. And sleep is actually far more important than those little snippets of, of training you might do during the day. Even exercise to some extent is very limited in what it does, but sleep is pervasive. It's there every day. It's a third of the day. So on a fundamental level, of course, it is critical. Sleep is a homeostatic process, just like hunger or thirst. So if you don't eat or drink, you eventually die. If you don't sleep, you will eventually die. That's been shown in experiments. They've done rat experiments and they've deprived them of sleep and, and eventually the rats just, just die. They break down. So, so clearly it's important from that sort of macro level. On, on a more micro level, as you would know, um, poor sleep is associated with poor attention, poor concentration, poor memory. So a lot more subtle stuff rather than just falling asleep. It's associated with um, lapses in sort of broader neurocognitive and neurobehavioral outcomes. So things like driving, of course, is a very important broad cognitive task. And when you don't sleep well, you are at higher risk of road accidents, industrial accidents, of course. And then there's all the correlation with, with adverse medical health outcomes. So blood pressure risk, heart attack risk, stroke risk, diabetes, links with obesity, arrhythmias, even cancer risk in shift workers. So we can see that the wide range of sleep disorders is not just in falling asleep. It's, it's the more subtle stuff, the memory, the cognition, the attention, the, the word finding. And then it's the, the health outcomes. And then it's the, the bigger stuff. You know, how do you function at work? Presenteeism, absenteeism. Um, accidents, driving. So it clearly is very important in, in so many different ways and, and arguably, you know, we really need to address it better. Now, you mentioned that in pneumonia, we have to start from, you know, very simple things like anatomy, uh, immunology, um, physiology. What does sleep medicine cover? What is the scope of this um, area? Essentially, sleep medicine refers to disorders of of sleep, as a, where as a result of that, people have impaired daytime function, daytime product, productivity, daytime alertness. And it's broadly categorized into respiratory or breathing sleep disorders and non-respiratory sleep disorders. So, so this, is, this is the challenge because a lot of people know a lot about obstructive breathing disorders, particularly obstructive sleep apnea, which is one of the obstructive breathing disorders, which is one of the respiratory sleep disorders. But there are many other respiratory sleep disorders that I'll, I'll touch upon. And then there's the whole non-respiratory sleep disorders that really only just peripherally gets into medical practitioners' attention. And they've probably heard the words parasomnias, narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnolence, restless legs, but have variable knowledge and skills in that direction. And, and yes, everyone knows a little bit about these things, but I guess it is worth spending time and going back to the basics, putting it all in broader context and working through these conditions. I would love uh, for this series of podcasts to go through uh, because in my mind, the outcomes of sleep disorders are pretty much just CPAP device or modafinil. Seriously, our knowledge is so limited. So when you mentioned that they are respiratory and non-respiratory disorders, a weird question is, can you describe some of the breathing disorders that are not sleep apnea? Yeah, so sleep apnea, of course, is the, um, the condition where people's upper airway blocks in their sleep, and as a result of that, they get low oxygen levels and brown arousal, brain arousals and often daytime tiredness and sleepiness. But some people will have upper airway resistance syndrome, which is not 
um, the full um, criteria for obstructive sleep apnea, if you like, and it's a more subtle breathing disorder where they have frequent brain arousals, but they don't have the oxygen desaturations, and it's associated with snoring, brain arousals, sleep fragmentation, and tiredness. So there's there's a bit of a more subtle version of an obstructive breathing disorder. And then, of course, there's the simple snorers, people that snore and don't have obstructive sleep apnea. And although we might not think of that as a problem in some way from a medical perspective, but it's clearly a problem for lots of patients because they just want to get their snoring better. They're not as interested in the obstructive sleep apnea component, or they may not understand it or understand the health risk, but they want to get that noise better. So the simple snorers we can't treat. Um, but then you've got the central sleep apnea condition. So some people have um, abnormal breathing in their sleep, and it's not due to the fact that they're blocking their upper airway. It's because they've got lack of respiratory drive, lack of respiratory effort. So that's called central apnea. And it manifests in the same way with low airflow, low oxygen levels, brain arousals, tiredness, sleepiness, sleep fragmentation. But it has a range of causes from cardiac disease, particularly people that have poor cardiac function, people with heart failure, people that have had strokes, some medications, particularly opioids, are associated with central apnea. So it is quite an important differential diagnosis of obstructive apnea. And to some extent, in some cases, it can be brought on by CPAP therapy. So we, we can't just think everything is obstructive apnea. We need to consider that there is another breathing disorder called central apnea, and maybe your patient has that, or maybe they have risk factors for that, or maybe we need to exclude it at the very least. And maybe we need to make sure it doesn't develop in the context of their treatment. And then the other big breathing disorder category is nocturnal hypoventilation. Now, we all understand that hypoventilation is underbreathing in sleep. So it's not so much a blocked airway in sleep, which is obstructive apnea. And it's not central apnea where there's a lack of drive to breathe. In central apnea, there's no, no effort to breathe, essentially. In hypoventilation, there's just lack of, um, lack of effort, not enough effort. So the effort is there. The breathing does happen, but the intensity is not enough to support ventilation. In other words, people get hypoxic and hypercapnic overnight, but their upper airway is open. So that's a really important condition. It's, it's most common cause is likely obesity. And as you know, obesity is incredibly common and becoming more common. Obesity is defined as a BMI more than 30, but there's plenty of people more than 35 and more than 40, more than 40 walking through my rooms and, and your rooms, I'm sure. And those people are at risk of obesity hypoventilation. So their breathing disorder at nighttime may not be obstructive sleep apnea, or it may only be partially obstructive sleep apnea. It may be that their airway is open at times and they get low oxygen levels and brain arousals and tiredness and sleepiness because they're just underventilating and they get the, the carbon dioxide retention, the headaches. Other causes of nocturnal hypoventilation would be medications. And again, we're losing lots of medications. Opioids would be another classic cause. There's neuromuscular disease, people with chest wall deformities, and there's sort of idiopathic causes too. So nocturnal hyperventilation is another important breathing disorder, different to obstructive apnea, different to central apnea. So there is a range in there, and that's why if we're just focusing on obstructive apnea or even just snoring and not thinking broadly enough or not even having the awareness of the other conditions, we are going to come unstuck. Mm. You know, we're going to miss the, miss, miss the boat on some occasions. Yes, thank you for just going through the list, Andre, because I'm really just fairly mindful that um, I have never seen it divided so clearly. C can I just go back to the upper airway obstruction briefly? Because in my mind, I'm thinking uh, kids with large tonsils and people with terrible obstructive nasal conditions. Uh, are these what you're thinking about? Well, certainly they are causes of people to have obstructive sleep apnea. 
I don't deal with kids as much. I deal with adults, but yeah, certainly in kids, adenoids and, and big tonsils can be big contributors to that blocked upper airway and that closing of the upper airway in sleep. And as you know, many of the ENT surgeons would assess them and then potentially take out the adenoids and tonsils. Having nasal obstruction is also a cause or, or a contributor to snoring and, and obstructive sleep apnea. In many other cases, it's obesity, particularly in the Caucasian population. In non-Caucasian populations, particularly Southeast Asian and in some other groups, it's craniofacial structure, craniofacial anatomy. So it's the overbites, it's the, you know, the jaw malocclusion. And that is really quite an important cause. And unfortunately, we tend to see quite heavy, high levels of obstructive sleep apnea in some young people on the basis of their retrognathia, the way their jaw is shaped, rather than obesity. And that can be a challenge because it's some of these younger people have got severe apnea and and often the best treatment in the absence of aggressive surgery is CPAP. And, and that's obviously not a great treatment for younger people in particular, particularly with mobility and, and just different sleeping arrangements and all sorts of things. So, um, but yeah, so it's craniofacial structure, it's obesity, it's nasal obstruction, it's tonsils and adenoids. Um, they would be some of the big contributors to obstructive apnea. Medications, of course, they, they would be your risk factors. Middle-aged men typically and, and peri- or post-menopausal women. Coming back to the non-Caucasian population, um, I, I am thankful for the description of the craniofacial uh, issues, but is it true that we don't need to be particularly visually obese to still put uh, be at risk of sleep apnea? That's true. So it is that inherited craniofacial structure in some groups that goes down in families that predisposes them. So you might find an individual that who's, who's 30, who has a BMI of 26, you know, not too high, Southeast Asian, history of snoring right from childhood, strong family history of snoring. A lot of the family members um, are not overweight and they snore. And that person may well have a facial structure that's causing upper airway narrowing and then more likely to cause obstructive apnea in their sleep. When I look in your mouth, uh, this is a dumb question, uh, but what am I actually looking for uh, to identify these issues? You're looking really for the lower jaw sitting back relative to the upper jaw, so the lower teeth sitting back or a small jaw. Um, so it might be the side profile of the, the, the facial contour, just seeing that lower jaw sit back. That, that's kind of what you're looking for. And not uncommonly, there's a bit of a history of orthodontics. So when you start to notice this or think about this, and you ask your patients, did you have any orthodontics in childhood? They not invariably describe, yes, I did. I had orthodontics, I had braces. And, and what was that for? I was to correct an overbite. They were trying to bring that lower jaw forward. Well, sometimes, of course, they don't know. And, and that's because it is recognized sometimes in childhood. Um, well, not sometimes, but probably often. And there are attempts to correct that. And sadly, from my understanding of, of the orthodontics of the past, and I'm not an orthodontist, as you would know, in the past, and I think it's stopped now, sometimes when kids would have crooked teeth and crowded teeth, their approach was to pull out a lot of teeth. And the net result of that over the years was to reduce the stimulus for growth of the jaw. Mm -hmm. And these kids then ended up with smaller jaws and, and later on snoring and sleep apnea. Now they don't do that. I think that's called abstraction orthodontics. And now they recognize that to, to straighten teeth and things, they expand things, they open it up and they don't limit the, the stimulus to grow. So, yeah, there's still a pool of that coming through where um, their childhood orthodontics or their childhood, you know, teeth and, and what has been done is part of part of the problem now or didn't actually get corrected as a result of what they did. And we've described a lot of uh, sleep disorders here, all related to the respiratory tract. Are there any non-respiratory sleep disorders? 
So yeah, that's a big that's a big area, and I think that's really where people need to learn to just understand a bit more and and focus a bit more because it's easy to to miss them. It's easy to not think about them, and then the patients will you know miss out on the management. Clearly, the most common or, or frequent or the most prominent, if you like, would be insomnia. We all kind of understand insomnia to some extent. It's difficulty going to sleep or it's a person wake up in the middle of the night, not being able to get back to sleep or they get early morning awakening or maybe they get frequent arousals at nighttime. And it's usually associated with daytime distress or, or impairment. So the key thing about insomnia is they're awake in bed when they're trying to go to sleep or, or get back to sleep and there's some sort of distress or impairment associated with that. And it's a really important condition because its prevalence is high. It could be 30% if you just asked simple questions. It might be 10% if you couple it with daytime impairment. Still incredibly high prevalence. You often see it with obstructive sleep apnea, and that's what we call comesa. It actually has a name, comorbid insomnia sleep apnea. And there are some physiological mechanisms that sort of um, work, work together there. But essentially, insomnia is, is critical. And if you actually take a detailed history, you'll find a lot of your obstructive sleep apnea patients or patients that are sent to you for obstructive sleep apnea, they actually have insomnia too. And then one of the challenges is to work out whether it's actually the obstructive sleep apnea that's causing their symptoms, causing their fatigue and tiredness, causing a lot of their problems, or maybe it's actually their insomnia. So this is where a broader understanding of, of sleep really becomes important. If you just think snoring apnea, they've got mild apnea, yeah, of course, that's why they're tired. But you don't pick up that they've got insomnia and that for most of the week, they're, they're awake for two hours in bed. And then the rest of the week, they're sleep restricted because they've got a busy family and social life and work, work life. They've got three causes of tiredness and sleepiness there, sleep apnea, insomnia, and sleep deprivation. And putting all your energy into treating the obstructive sleep apnea may not get them better and it, it may be completely misdirected. So you've got to un understand the other causes, the other sleep conditions, that is insomnia and sleep deprivation, and they are sleep conditions, and, and they are causes of the daytime symptom, which is, of course, what the patient's coming to see us about, tiredness, sleepiness, drowsiness, poor function, problems at work. So I think that really underscores the importance of starting to think broadly about the non-respiratory causes. So insomnia would be one of the more common ones, um, and it's very comorbid with obstructive sleep apnea, and, and sometimes it's a bit of a challenge to work out what is the dominant cause and which one do you treat first. Maybe you want to treat the insomnia first. Maybe you want them to undergo a program of CBT for sleep, cognitive behavioural therapy, tidy up their sleep habits and routines, get more sleep hours. We might find the tiredness and sleepiness goes away and that the mild obstructive sleep apnea was not important at all. Sleep deprivation, I mentioned, is common too. So as a society in general, we don't get enough sleep. Maybe things changed and improved a little bit with COVID when people were working from home, they could sleep in, they didn't need to get, get up for, um, for work as much. But I think COVID also introduced periods of insomnia too, where people were awake through to you know, work stress, but they also had more time in bed, they'd spend more time awake, that would induce insomnia or they would change their routines and get a bit of a delayed sleep phase. So, so that's a bit of another non-respiratory sleep disorder a sleep disorder due with, to do with um, body clock timing and you know sleep rhythm, delayed sleep phase and advanced sleep phases. And that can also cause tiredness and sleepiness at the wrong times. It can also link in with insomnia because they're awake at the wrong time. So, um, so sleep deprivation is important. That's a very important cause of tiredness and sleepiness. And that, that could be the patient's only cause, only problem. In fact, they might have very little apnea or the apnea levels are very low. They're not having insomnia, they're just not spending enough time in bed and they're tired all the time. And if they just spend a little extra half an hour, an hour in bed, it sounds so simple, of course, but until you point it out and see if they can adhere to it, 
they don't get better. I mentioned the delayed sleep phase condition. So that would be a third type of non-respiratory sleep disorder. So I mentioned insomnia, I mentioned sleep deprivation. Now I'm talking about circadian rhythm disorders, essentially. So the two main types would be an advanced sleep phase and a delayed sleep phase. So the delayed sleep phase is that classic teenager syndrome where they go to bed late, their body clock shifted to become drowsy later, they might work a bit later, they might use their phone and social media a little bit later, they don't fall asleep to two, three in the morning, and they want to get up at about midday. But of course they can't, they have to get up at seven or eight for school, and next thing you know, they're sleep restricted, they're tired during the day, they're falling asleep during the day. And partly these delayed sleep phase syndromes are physiological, it's, it's that, you know, um, it's their old, own biology, but part of it's behavioural. And not uncommonly, people will present, particularly younger people, with tiredness and sleepiness during the day. And part of their problem is, is just this body clock issue. It's not the obstructive apnea. In fact, they're often thin and don't have tonsils and adenoids or nasal obstruction. They won't even have much obstructive apnea. But they may be sent to you because everyone's thinking obstructive apnea. But in fact, it's a body clock issue. And, and the corollary of that, of course, is the elderly person that gets drowsy in the evening, um, falls asleep on the couch, maybe watching TV or reading for a few hours, gets up, does a few things, goes to bed, sleeps for another four hours, wakes up at two in the morning and is wide awake. Now they come to you and say, I can't sleep, doctor. Um, and you're thinking, oh, they've got insomnia, you know, they can't sleep. But in fact, when you actually take a broader sleep history and actually realise that they're getting three hours of sleep on the couch, you might think, actually, you know what, their body clock's probably shifted for them becoming drowsy and starting their sleep time from about 6 p.m. And then, of course, their sleep period's finished by about 2 a.m., so of course they'll be awake. Do you know what I mean? So they're locked in an advanced sleep phase. Mm -hmm. And this is where the importance of taking a broader sleep history but also understanding the other conditions that exist in sleep medicine. And then you'll pick up, you know what? It's not obstructive apnea. It's it's nothing to do with um, insomnia even. It's just their um, sleep timing is all wrong. Mm. It's a circadian rhythm problem. Um, just like jet lag is or shift work sleep disorder. So again, all these words we hear about, but don't really think about and how does it affect sleep and how does it affect our patients and what do we know about these conditions and what are we going to do about them if someone actually maybe has them? And I know I'm saying a lot of words and, and floating around a lot, but I guess I'm trying to cover, if you like, the whole of cardiology in 30 minutes. It's just it's almost impossible to, to really give much depth to, to anything except to point out these conditions and maybe just give a little bit of a framework and information about what might exist? Well, at the moment, I, I just think of you as building the framework for future uh, podcasts where you can do a deeper dive into the more important issues. But already you have just given me so many factors to actually create a very complex matrix to think through, and it can get rather confusing. Um, so I wonder if you can help us think through and help us structure an approach to, say, a, a sleepy patient. Yeah, so I, I think that, that then opens up this idea that when a person presents for sleep assessment, it's not just about their presenting for assessment of obstructive sleep apnea. What you need to look at them is a patient that's sleepy or tired, but let's call it drowsiness or sleepiness, and that's their symptom. So what is the cause? And there can be many causes we just worked about, worked out. So it may be that they have obstructive sleep apnea, of course, and, and GPs and many doctors are quite good at picking that up, mm -hmm. and it's common, and it does cause tiredness and sleepiness. But it may be that if you take a history, 
and you look at their bedtimes and their sleep times, they don't get enough sleep. Maybe they have sleep deprivation, sleep restriction. Like I said, if you're getting six hours sleep a night, every night and trying to catch up a bit of sleep on the weekend, you don't often catch up enough and you end up chronically tired and sleepy. Um, you'll never catch up that sleep debt. You'll never sleep in enough and, and your whole body clock gets shifted too. So it's a real mess to do it like that. Um, but maybe it's not obstructive apnea. Maybe it's not lack of sleep time. Maybe it's insomnia. So when you start to take the history, you'll realize that person's sleepy and tired because they've got the insomnia. Then you've got the circadian rhythm conditions that we were just talking about before. Once you take a bit of a sleep history and you realize they're not going to bed till two in the morning and, and not falling asleep till three, and whenever they can, they just sleep to midday, you realize, you know what, this is a delayed sleep phase. So they're, they're sleepy at 10 a.m. when they have to get up for work or school because they just don't have the right sleep rhythm and they're obviously sleep restricted in that context. We need to think also beyond just sleep medicine. So clearly there are other medical disorders that can cause tiredness and sleepiness. You've got Parkinson's disease, you've got chronic neurological conditions, you've got connective tissue conditions, you've got cancer. There's a high overlap with depression, anxiety in, um, in how people feel during the day, tiredness, irritability, drowsiness. And then you've got medications, of course. So some of the more complicated patients will be on tablets, you know, that, that can induce sleepiness or have hangover effects the next day, anticonvulsants, antipsychotics. And then the other really important um, sleep condition, I think, is is what we call the more primary brain disorders, the more narcolepsy and hypersomnolence conditions. So, so what, what this is, is, is people that have a long history of daytime tiredness and sleepiness going back often to their 20s. And they, it's often misdiagnosed or late diagnosed. And they come to see you maybe in their late 20s, early 30s. And they say, you know, I've been tired and sleepy my whole life. I used to fall asleep at school all the time. I'd be falling asleep in all the lectures. My friends will get irritated because I can never go out with them. I had a patient that even said to me she had to go and have a nap on her on a honeymoon. I'm sorry, on her um, on her wedding night, just quickly go home and have a nap in order to finish the wedding. So this long history of tiredness and sleepiness, they'd been told they were lazy, they'd been told they were depressed, they'd been told they had chronic fatigue, they'd tried everything, then they had kids, maybe they thought it was the kids, and then suddenly they get to a stage in their life where there's nothing to blame. And mm -hmm. so you know what? I get eight hours or ten hours or twelve hours sleep a night, but I still do an extra two hours during the day. And they're what we call these primary brain conditions or idiopathic hypersomnolence would be what I was largely describing there. So I guess when you look at the sleepy patient or when I look at the sleepy patient, I'm trying to think about all those things. So I know, again, a lot of words, but what I'm doing is I'm taking a history of obstructive sleep apnea for sure, but I'm also asking about their bedtimes and their sleep times, and that gives me an idea of insomnia or sleep deprivation. I'm obviously checking their medications and their other medical comorbidity. So you can very quickly decide if they are contributors. Circadian rhythm disorders usually comes out in that history of bedtimes and sleep times and when do you get up and when do you get the sleepiness. And those more primary brain disorders, you start to think about them when none of those things seem to exist and you start to get a flavour of a long history of tiredness and sleepiness that's refractory to other treatments or refractory to investigations or in the absence of obstructive apnea and things like that. So it kind of sounds like a lot of different conditions I've meshed into there. But if you do have a bit of a structure around taking a sleep history where you're asking about bedtime, sleep time, sleep duration, when do you get up, tiredness, sleepiness, um, some specific questions maybe about breathing disorders, um, you're obviously taking your past history of medications or in general practice, you would already know that already. You will start to be able to tease out, you know, what are the causes of this person's sleepiness? 
And as you can see, I would say to you, in most cases, it's not just obstructive apnea. I hope that I hope that sort of um, has come out, and maybe that's a fair comment. Hopefully, from where you're sitting, that there's far more to it than the breathing disorder in sleep. And and the challenge with obstructive sleep apnea um, is because so many people have mild apnea. Um, it's easy to over-diagnose and over-treat, if you like, this condition and attribute everything to the apnea when it's actually not their apnea and you're missing the other kind of sleep conditions that we've just gone through. So the approach to the sleepy patient, to me, is a lot broader. I'm trying to think about, well, what am I missing here? What else is here? Um, what are the range of conditions that are possibilities? Then, of course, you work down a diagnostic and a treatment pathway to narrow it and hopefully get it right by the end. An important filter for GPs is this. What belongs, if you like, in our domain that we can try to do something for? And what are the red flags or signals that tells us, hang on, you really need this person investigated further? I think if you start with the approach of that sleepy patient and start to just take a bit of a broader history, mm -hmm. you'll find out the bits in there that may be contributors. And, and then you decide if you can manage them or not. So let's say it's, it's, it's the medications or the, you know, the neurological or psychiatric problems. Well, you're not going to involve a sleep physician there. Easy. Or at least yeah. by, by at least having this discussion, we might even think, well, maybe they're causes, maybe they're contributors. Because what might otherwise happen is you might send them to the sleep doctor. Um, we do a sleep study. We find mild apnea. And perhaps if we're a little bit enlightened, we say, you know what, it's not the mild apnea. It's actually their medications and their you know, antipsychotics causing this maybe you know so and it's back to you so so maybe if you think a little bit broadly you won't always need to to send them out yeah. but of course if you do think it's obstructive apnea and you're not sure what to do or if you think they've got restless leg syndrome which we haven't talked about but that can affect sleep or if you think their insomnia is very refractory and it's gone beyond what you think you can do um, so once you identify these conditions and you slightly find you're outside your comfort zone then of course you you would refer them on. But I would think the role in general practice is, is to think a bit more broadly and identify them, identify what they think the contributors are. And many GPs are very good at this, but sometimes we do get, you know, reasonably shallow referrals and it's just, it's just everyone's thinking, just thinking about obstructive apnea and, and it, it may be 60% of the problem, but there could be more to it. And I guess that's also our job to, to do all that. But yeah, if you're asking me what can GPs do, I think they can um, just think a bit more broadly and, and decide which is the right pathway for, for the next step, whether it's themselves, whether it's another specialist, whether it's the sleep specialist, um, whether it's a psychiatrist or, or, you know, that kind of thing. Two issues that comes up very quickly is if we believe that history suggests a circadian rhythm issue, is this where uh, things like blue light and uh, melatonin comes in? What should we do for these sorts of issues? Yeah, light and melatonin are the key strategies when you've got circadian rhythm disorders. So the, the key regulator of our biological or circadian rhythm is light. So in the case of a delayed sleep phase syndrome where their, their body clock is timed to sleep from, say, about 3 a.m. to midday, what we've got to do is work on bringing that body clock forward so they're, they're in line with more conventional social times. That's if they want to, of course. If they don't want to, then there's nothing to change. But let's say they want to fall asleep about 10.30 and you know wake up at about 6.30, Mm -hmm. then what you've got to do is have them get up a little bit earlier and get them exposed to lots of light soon after awakening. That light will shut down melatonin in the morning. Um, that wakes them up. But shutting down the melatonin in the morning at the same time in particular then regulates the melatonin rhythm so it's supposed to rise a bit more at nighttime and help them fall asleep a little bit quicker because melatonin hormone 
it induces sleep, but it also is a phase shifter in the in the hypothalamus. So, so it's about light in the morning. It's about some melatonin administration, maybe in the evening, usually mm-hmm. one or two hours before the desired bedtime. And it's about a stricter routine. It's about tidying up some of their, their habits or at least explaining it properly. But not uncommonly, these patients also have um, sleep initiation insomnia. So it's not as simple as just a delayed sleep phase. They may actually have an insomnia element where they're just hypervigilant in bed, hyper aroused, and, and then they might need a bit of cognitive behavioral therapy in there or CBT. Um, so, so yes, definitely adjusting rhythm and using melatonin and light as the key principles, but also trying to decide if it is just a simple delayed sleep phase condition, or maybe there's elements of insomnia there. And I'd see that more in the ones that are a little bit older that have had it for a long time. We're talking thirties or forties. So it's not just a rhythm problem at that point. There's often insomnia, but even some young, young girls too, I've seen plenty that have a delayed sleep phase, safe sleep phase condition, but there's a lot of anxiety and then there's a comorbid insomnia. And there's a few conditions all contributing to their, their poor sleep time and poor sleep quality. But yeah, the general principles would be light and melatonin for the rhythm no. condition. If a GP decides to trial melatonin, uh, at what dose should we get up to? How quickly and for how long before we think it's, a, if you like, a failure? Well, melatonin is just part of the management. So that, that is, I think that's the important thing. Melatonin does help to raise the melatonin rhythm, help them go to sleep and, and phase shift. But just as important is that light in the morning, which shuts down the re- rhythm and then regulates and, and the other stuff. But generally you might either use a prolonged release melatonin at two milligrams, two hours before the desired bedtime, or you might use an immediate release melatonin, often use about five milligrams or maybe six milligrams, um, again, one or two hours before bedtime, because it does take a bit of time for those melatonin levels to rise. So you don't want to give it just at bedtime because you're going to lose the effect just when you want it. So, so roughly they're the kind of doses. I melatonin is not an amazing hypnotic it's not an amazingly strong drug in terms of hypnotic effect and you don't need really high doses to phase shift so it's not a matter of just escalating the doses and you get more effect so so you're right in the sense that you know you try it a bit but it may not be the be all and end all and that's why stressing all the non-drug strategies is really critical and i would say the non-drug strategies and the non-drug management is more important in fact than melatonin alone but that helps us to, as you say, divide up between what is a circadian issue versus uh, other sorts of insomnia. And we've got to start somewhere. At least it gives us a, a way in to start something. I, I do wonder, are the issue that you brought up very briefly is that hypersomnia? And it's when people turn up and say, look, I have no reason to be so sleepy in the daytime. If we don't want to get that far, and a patient just comes in and they're fairly young and they're saying, look, I'm really sleepy. What are some of the questions or signals that will tell us this person needs to be investigated? And if we do want to investigate, what tests should we be asking for? Yeah, look, that's a really important group. And I think it's a really tough group. And I've seen plenty of young people that have gone through, you know, good good sleep doctors, had a sleep study, it's been normal and they've been dismissed as, oh, you've got nothing wrong with you, off you go. In fact, I had one just the other day that said the sleep doctor had the secretary ring me the result. The sleep study was normal. She was a doctor, actually. The patient was a doctor, but the secretary had rung and said, sleep study was normal, you don't need to do anything. So she came and saw me and said, you know, that was the history. But she had a long history of sleepiness going back to school years and university years where she wasn't functioning properly. And she was relatively young and thin and she was never going to have sleep apnea. 
um, and she'll sleep in 12 hours a night and, you know, an extra two hours during the day. So I guess, what do you look for? You're looking for, were you first thinking about these other conditions and seeing if they exist? And obviously, if they exist, you, you need to look into them and investigate and treat them because these conditions are diagnoses of exclusions. You have to exclude the other conditions. You don't have untreated sleep apnea. They're not having insomnia. It's not medications. It's not their psychiatric illness causing the hypersomnolence. But you do get this group that eventually presents to you and you it might take a few visits to work it out and because it's not an immediately obvious thing, but they have really high levels of sleepiness. So I'm not talking tiredness as such. There's a distinction. Tiredness is like exhaustion, low energy, you know, being tired. Sleepiness is a drowsiness. They're drifting off at times inappropriately. They're napping a lot. So these people will either have long sleep hours overnight, 10, 12, 14 hours, and then an extra two hours nap during the day or want to nap or, or will nap inappropriately. They might nap on their couch at work if they can. I've got quite a few barristers. I'll have a quick nap on their couch, you know, and, and um, they're, they're grabbing sleep when they can. So it's this drowsiness and this high sleep need is the clue in the absence of other sleep conditions. And there's, there's no problems taking a few visits to suddenly think oh my god maybe there's something more going on because that's exactly how it should be i don't think you can make these diagnoses just in one visit because you know you're making a lifelong decision in, in a, just a very quick assessment but you're also seeing functional impact i think that's the other key it's high levels of sleepiness and they're saying because of this i can't do this so i always say to them well what can't you do because of the sleepiness and if there's not much they can't do then maybe there isn't a big problem and often those people won't want to take stimulants because they're not that impaired. But if they can't, um, if they're getting in trouble at work all the time or they say, well, you know, I get home from work and I'm asleep all the time and my, my partner gets um, angry or I can't go out socially or I really try to avoid going out in the evening. Um, and it's a real problem, you know, for in terms of family or social or work or relationships. It's when they give you that history, that's, I think, the big red flag. Because you've got to do something about it. You've got to find the cause, whether it's this hypersomnolence condition or something else. Um, they're, they're, they're dysfunctional, and that's not nice for anybody. So, so I think that's probably the number one red flag or red or sort of warning bell. You know what is going on. Um, in those cases, you really have to, I think, send them to a sleep physician because they're going to need obviously that assessment done to some extent on their history. But they will ultimately need an MSLT, which is a multiple sleep latency test, which is a hospital based. Um, or a sleep laboratory-based daytime test of sleepiness where we get them to sleep in the lab on a few occasions and we measure their level of sleepiness and we see whether it's abnormal or not. And that, that really informs the diagnosis. Conditions like narcolepsy, which is a little bit of a variation of that, have a lot more discrete symptoms that are a little bit more obvious. They're a bit more florid at times, so not always as easy missed or, or more obvious levels of sleepiness. But yeah, I guess it's the, the high sleepiness and, and the dysfunction would be the two, two factors. And the test you mentioned was a multiple sleep latency test, right? That's it, yeah. Look, I, I just think you've already given us a really good way to actually ask a really good history. I love asking uh, the functional impact. Uh, I'm not sure if everybody asked that question, but that's such an important question that tells you whether or not the issue is really a as you said, not much of an issue, or oh, my goodness, they can't keep living like that. We need to do something. Uh, Anup, I believe that uh, there will be other podcasts in the future where you'll do a deeper dive into some of the more important issues. At this stage, I wonder if there are any key messages you might have for our listeners. I think the main key 
key message is just try to get familiar with the range of conditions. And let's just think a bit broadly. Um, without overstating that, I think it is fair to say that um, thinking just about one condition and not thinking broadly is, is, is not really doing, um, you know, doing, doing it justice. So I, my key message would be to look around for content that isn't just about obstructive apnea. Think about just sleepiness as a symptom and what are the causes and is it something you've prescribed to their other conditions or is it a sleep disorder? Think about sleep hours, think about insomnia, think about the timing of sleep. Just don't think about the fragmentation, the physicality of, you know, of a blocked airway. So that would be my message. Anup, thank you so much for that. I would encourage all our listeners to tune in for uh, future podcasts from Dr. Desai because I think it's such an important area for all of us. Anup, I just thank you for your time. No problems. Thank you, David. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.